Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. This month's book is Tanya James's historical novel, Loot. The story opens in Mysore, India in the late 1700s, where a young woodcarver named Abbas is summoned to the Sultan's palace to help make a mechanical tiger. The novel spans continents and decades, but that tiger is at the center of the story. And here to tell us more about her book is Tanya James, the book's author. Tanya, welcome. Hi, Greta. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Thanks for coming on. So I was actually kind of mind blown when I realized that this tiger is actually real. It's at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Yeah. I had never heard of it until I came across it in a book, Hmm. but it is a six foot long wooden tiger that's mauling the throat of an English soldier. And there's, you know, back in the day when it worked, you could turn a hand crank and the tiger would grunt and the soldier would groan. And there was an organ that would play sort of a, you know, soundtrack for this little scene. Um, So it's pretty spectacular. I mean, the symbolism of that alone is just like rife with opportunity. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting to me is that it means different things to different people. Hmm. So to Tipu Sultan, who is this ruler who commissioned it, he hated the British East India Company. So to him, it probably was a symbol of that hatred and that desire Hmm. to destroy them. And then eventually it comes into the hands of the British. And for them, it was probably a symbol of Indian savagery. So that's Hmm. one of the things that, that I kind of had this sense that this object would be really charged as a as an object in fiction, because it just means such different things to different people. Mm -hmm. Well, and even at the museum, they call it like one of their most famous and intriguing objects, which I just think is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely maybe one of their most popular exhibits. That's wild. So as you mentioned, I mean, this tiger is real. Tipu Sultan is real. He was a ruler in Mysore during a really complicated period of history. He had an alliance with the French to keep the British out, but the British did eventually take over the region. They killed Tipu. Um, There are a couple of instances in this book, especially when you're describing the siege that happens, where you talk about how the moment ends up being depicted in historical documents versus what it was actually like, which I found very compelling. Thank you. That was sort of my way of making the history interesting to me because Mm. I was reading, I find a lot of historical research, particularly primary sources to be kind of dry and sort of dense and distant. And I, and I just kept thinking like, how do you make historical fiction, like a siege feel like action, like an, like there's movement and the sort of, um, this, this have this sort of like thrilling, kind of dynamism. Um, and I, I, I think one of the ways, one of the, th- the sort of guiding, you know, uh, rules for me when I was writing scenes like this was I just have to write what matters to the character that I'm writing about. And mm. so I was always sort of trying to keep my eye on the big picture, but also kind of trying to remind the reader that we're really not 
here to learn about history purely from a kind of authoritative standpoint. We're really looking at history through this very narrow perspective, um, this very um, subjective point of view of this woodcarver who is really seemingly insignificant in the vast scope of history. But for us, he's, you know, he is really, really important. It's so interesting to hear you describe that smaller scope because the word I kept coming up with to describe this book is proximity. Because I do feel like, you know, to your point, often, I mean, this book is about a very far away long ago time and place. And it can be really hard to to become compelled to read something about those topics. But because you're so close to all of these characters, it's just so digestible. It's so fascinating. It's so well written. Mm, thank you so much. I mean, I think one of the things I care about most in fiction is immersion. Like that's what I want mm-hmm. as a reader. And that's what I want it to convey as a writer. And so at times I want to be very close to the character that the point of view character I'm writing, I also like jumping around and Mm. giving a sense of, you know, the sort of more marginal figures in, in a historical moment that we might not be paying attention to, but even just a moment of proximity gives us this intimacy that I think history can't give you because that's just not what its aims Mm. are. But Mm -hmm. I think that for me, that is the aim of, of good fiction. So, yeah, you mentioned Abbas. He's, a purely fictional character. He did not exist in real life, though. I mean, someone made the tiger. Um, I'm curious how you decided what, when to stick to history and when to deviate. Was it really just because history is often on such a grand scale that you had to become more kind of micro with it? I mainly let delight be my guide. Like what I was having fun, you know, and I wanted, (laughs) I did, I just really, I guess it was a certain point in time. I had, had two kids and had a couple of novels that weren't working. And I was just really re-examining what I want to spend my time on. And I really, fun was, and delight and adventure. These were the things that I I wanted to spend my time on. Not that there aren't heavy subjects in the, in the novel, but Mm -mm. I just, I just wanted to go wherever the fun was. So with Abbas, I mean, at first I found it really challenging because I didn't have any information about who made this, who made Tipu's Tiger. And I knew I wanted to write about the person who made it or the people who made it. And then I just, I just sort of leaned into the, this idea that historical fiction is as much speculation as it, as it is research in history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, finding the fun in that, that speculative space was really uh, gave me a lot of momentum. Mm, I love that so much. So you talk about shifting points of view. Um, that happens several times throughout the book. And everyone who we hear from has some proximity to the tiger, except in the middle section, when Abbas is crossing the ocean from India, eventually he gets to France. And we get that from the perspective of a British sailor, and they're essentially diary entries. And I was really fascinated by by how you chose that approach for that section. Mm, I mean, I love epistolary stories, stories mm. told in letters or emails or, you know, and part of it, it feels a little bit like a, reading a mystery. It almost feels like the there's a shift in terms of um, the in in this novel where we're not really able to tell always what what the writer of these letters is trying to hide or what they're trying to how they're trying to 
depict themselves or what, you know, we don't always understand their, or recognize their blind spots or they don't recognize their blind spots. And I, I just, I just love the way um, epistolary to me is a bit more of a mysterious form. And, and it was just kind of a fun way to move across time. I, I tried to write it in a more traditional or conventional way, but I found myself once again, like, you know, I was, I got, I got a bit bored and I was like, how do I make this fun for me? And so I, I turning it into these diary entries felt like being introduced to a totally new voice. Um, and it just allowed allowed this other kind of new relationship to flourish between a boss and the sailor. Um, and so, I mean, it really, it, it, I kind of, I like when novels do that, when at some point they sort of pull the rug out from under you mm-hmm. with the promise that it's going to pay off emotionally, that there's a point to this. Well, I think it works really well in that section, especially because it's such a huge, I mean, he, they're traveling such a vast distance. So it's such a sort of like, transitional time anyway and then to kind of see a boss who we have seen from such close perspective until then instead now sort of through the filter of all of this you know early 1800s British racist colonialist nonsense I think is really fascinating that's a good point I didn't think about this but you know until then we've been very close to him is sort of very intimate point of view for the most part and 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 I I kind of felt like I like in the middle of a novel when I wanted to create some sort of disruption, but it's also a thematic disruption because he's severed from his family. He's severed from everything he knows. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of meet him again, I wanted to suggest that this is a period of great change and transformation. And so I I felt like trying to look at him from an outsider's point of view um, would be an interesting way of depicting that change rather than staying with it with his sort of intimate point of view if that makes sense totally i think it sort of reminds the reader of when and where we are in some context that a lot of you know especially readers who are more familiar with western history are like oh yeah right that's that it's that Mm -hmm. time frame we're working with you know Mm -hmm. yeah so there's a really lovely moment early in the book and it kind of comes up several times throughout as well someone recites a poem and it's gorgeous can you tell us about it? It's it is a real poem, right? Yes, it was um a verse from a poet named Zebunisa. Um and I Zebunisa is not in the novel, but I took this verse from her. She was a daughter of the Mughal emperor Aurangzeb and she these there, there's a book of poetry that's attributed to her. It's called Book of the Hidden One because she never published under her own name. Hmm. And um I think I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it's the verse is something like if anyone would were to draw me, how could they draw the form of a sigh? Because mm-hmm. um, she lived in confinement. And I just love the idea that this person lived in confinement and yet their verses are still kind of um, with us today. And I love the idea of pulling actual voices from history, actual quotes of things people have said, and allowing them to be woven into the tapestry of the novel. In a sense, I feel like you know, history has no beginning and end. It's, you know, ongoing. And I wanted the novel, which is a historical fiction, to have that sense of ongoingness, like Mm. this ongoing conversation with the world in which we live. And I just love the sense of this, the book speaking back to the past. More with Tanya James about her book, Loot, in just a minute. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So this was your first time writing historical fiction, right? I wrote a short story once. Oh, right. And it was so hard. (laughs) I found it so hard. Um, because I, I think especially in a short story, because you have such a narrow canvas. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely entered into this project with some intimidation. So how did it go? I mean, would you, would you do it again? I can't imagine how intense the research process must've been. I think I would do it again. I mean, I kind of have said no, but Mm -hmm. I feel like to some extent, I think the subject picks you. Mm. And so, you know, you can't, I wouldn't say no for sure, but I, it definitely would have to be, you know, when I discovered that Tipu's Tiger, I was, you know, it was, it was so captivating. And I think probably if something as captivating as that came along, I, I wouldn't say no, but I, I think the research was hard for me. Although I think, I think maybe that was good because I am not the type of person who's just going to get lost in research, which I know some people mm. have that problem. Mm-hmm. I'm always kind of like, okay, what, what is the minimal amount what do of I need? things I need to learn? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. So did you go to London and see the tiger? I did. That part of the research was super fun. Um, I went to Rouen. The, the, the tiger itself, I felt, I felt really humbled by it. I knew how big it was, mm. but I, the feeling of it when you're standing there is, it is very humbling. It's, um, there's something sort of awe-inspiring about it um, and mysterious about it still. There's a point in the book where someone describes the artistry of it as crude, I think is the word. Yes. Yes. Because the exterior is um, sort of, you know, stylistically in keeping with the sort of um, local carving style. So it's not realistic in the way that you know, a lot of automatons, which were sort of precursors to robots, they in, they were popular in Europe in the mm-hmm. 1700s, and they looked very, very realistic. Um, and, and I think they, the the aim of it was to try to replicate what a woman looks like when she's, you know, blowing on a flute or, you know, so mm-hmm. this, I think the aims of this were different. And so it does, it's not a realistic looking tiger. So you talked about how Tipu would have thought of it in one way, especially, you know, he even sort of considered himself a tiger or how the British would consider it another way. I'm curious how you standing in a museum in the year 2020, whatever interpreted it. Mm, I, I think when I was looking at it, I was definitely looking at it in the context of the other pieces in the exhibit. Sure. So it's like a, I don't know, South Indian, you know, art objects. And they're all sort of neutral looking because they're severed from their context. It's, you know, it's like the gown of Tipu Sultan or the sword or the, here's a picture of two, uh, like a shoemaker. They're sort of um, ethnographic in a way. Mm. And this piece 
even if you don't have a plaque that explains, you know, in detail what how it came to be, it you kind of it kind of arrives with its own commentary. Hmm. And in that way, I have not encountered anything like it in Indian art or South Asian art that that is really, you know, so boldly critiquing British power. Yeah. And so it, it just seems so unique. And and I've come to learn that it is actually very unique. Hmm. So you mentioned this book is also about serious topics. I mean, you are looking at sort of a micro scale, but this book very much is about reckoning with colonialism. And I think it looks very clearly at both the futility and brutality of it, if that makes sense. Um, and the title fits into that too. Yeah. Uh, loot comes from um, Sanskrit, which uh, lutna, which means to plunder. God. Um, and I think it entered the English language around this time, uh, like maybe in the 1800s, early 1800s. And I think for me, the word contained you know, multiple kind of resonances, both about theft, but also about migration, the way in which language, people migrate, but language also migrates. Mm -hmm. I just love that it contained all these different sort of facets. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. So my last question for you is back to Tipu's Tiger. Should it be in London? Hmm. Well, I I feel complicated mm, feelings about it sure. because I, on the one hand, Im- my immediate answer is, well, no, I mean, it right. should, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to have it be witnessed by people in India? Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of people of South Asian origin passing through England and who are able to see it too. So I do think there's a quote in the novel um, that is credited to a British Sri Lankan activist. I am mm-hmm. there because you, I am here because you were there. Yeah. And he's really talking about the story of colonialism as being a story of migration and movement and that it's ongoing. It's still, it's still happening. I, I personally feel like every object has its own context that has to be reckoned with. And, you know, I would love my, my ideal thing would be, you know, somehow if, Tipu's tiger could spend have live a bicoastal or bicontinental <laughs> life, but um, but I I also just feel like at the very least I don't see this happening anytime soon. But I, at the very least, I would love for museums, yeah. the VNA in particular, to to be a bit more confrontational or a bit more uh, specific about the context of this object, just in the language that it uses when it when you know when describing what's being displayed and how it actually arrived there. Thank you. This was such a pleasure to talk with you. It's a great book and I can't wait for listeners to read it too. Awesome. Thank you. You know the drill. Read the book along with us. Let us know what you think. You can record yourself on your phone and then email that file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com and come back the last Tuesday of the month to hear our discussion of this book. I can't wait for you to read this one. And of course, we'll be announcing our August pick very soon. So keep an ear out for that as well. We will be announcing that over on Instagram. So be sure to follow us. We're at instagram.com slash nerdatpodcast. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman, J.P. Swenson, builds our newsletter, and our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. We will see you on Friday. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.